Uh, the next poem is another uh, description. It's called A Blessing. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white. Her mane falls wild on her forehead and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. here for another episode of Internal Medicine Essentials Questions for Students. It is Sunday, March 22nd, 2020, and we're getting a few more maybe cases of COVID-19 here at our hospital. We admitted one yesterday that uh, is being ruled out. Of. We think she's going to actually rule in, but we'll see what happens. She's doing well, fortunately. Uh, so this is going to continue in the infectious diseases medicine section of internal medicine essentials. Oh, and I should probably explain to you that intro uh, so that you can go back and listen to it again and have a little more context. That is one of my favorite poems ever. That's by my, well, one of my favorite poets ever, James Wright. And James Wright was a very interesting man. He was born in the 1920s in Martins Ferry, Ohio, and he grew up there, and a lot of his poetry, uh, even though he ended up not being able to stand the place he grew up in, he wrote a lot of his poetry about the place he grew up in. He was a professor at various places, got a PhD, I forget what kind of literature, 
I should remember this because I'm reading uh, his biography right now, his most recent biography that came out a couple of years ago. And it's uh, really an excellent biography if you're into reading about poets. In any case, uh, he was a very heavy drinker, heavy smoker. Uh, I haven't gotten to the end of the book, but as I recall, he died of lung cancer. And so I thought you'd enjoy that poem there just to introduce this session here. So this is going to be item 23, and the question is, a 38-year-old man is admitted to the hospital for a four-week history of fever, shortness of breath, myalgia, and decreased appetite. On physical examination, temperature is 39.0 degrees centigrade or 102.2 Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 138 over 60 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 112 per minute. Jugular venous distension is increased. A grade 3 out of 6 crescendo, decrescendo systolic murmur is noted at the right upper sternal border, and a grade 3 out of 6 decrescendo diastolic murmur is noted at the left lower sternal border. Bibasal or crackles are heard on examination of the lungs. Laboratory findings include a hemoglobin level of 9.0 grams per deciliter and a leukocyte count of 17,500 per microliter with a left shift. The patient is treated empirically with vancomycin and gentamicin intravenously. Blood cultures are positive for veridin's group streptococci, which are susceptible to penicillin. Transesophageal echocardiogram shows normal left ventricular size and systolic function, a bicuspid aortic valve with a mild aortic stenosis and severe aortic valve regurgitation. A 0.5 centimeter vegetation is seen on the aortic valve with echolucency uh, fluid close parentheses, around the posterior aortic annulus. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? And I picked this question because this comes up frequently on the medicine service, and I want you guys to know the answer, um, or maybe you already know the answer. So the choices are A, aortic valve replacement, B, cardiac catheterization, C, intravenous heparin, or D, intravenous penicillin for four to six weeks. So again, choices are aortic valve replacement, B, cardiac cath, C, intravenous heparin, or D, intravenous penicillin for four to six weeks. So i give you a chance to think over that question, uh, and let's see if any of you have any comments. Well, I'll take that as no, you have no comments. <laughs> Uh, so the answer is A, uh, the patient should undergo a replacement of the aortic valve. Uh, he has aortic valve endocarditis complicated by perivalvular extension resulting in an abscess as well as severe aortic regurgitation. Urgent surgical intervention is indicated for patients with heart failure, you know, which he has manifestations of. Remember his jugular venous pulse was elevated and he had crackles at the bases in his lungs on exam, so evidence of heart failure. Uh, abscess or fistula formation, severe left-sided valvular regurgitation, refractory infection despite appropriate antibiotic therapy, recurrent embolic events, especially with residual vegetation larger than one centimeter. 
There should be no delay in surgical intervention for observation of the patient's response to antibiotic therapy once the surgical indications are met. So you know which antibiotics to treat him with, but that doesn't really matter given how dire his circumstances are. In this patient, the complications of endocarditis would not likely improve or resolve without surgical therapy. Continuing antibiotic therapy alone without immediate surgical intervention may result in further decompensation of the patient's clinical status and an increased operative risk for intervention at a later time. And I've seen this where um, surgery was a little bit delayed for various reasons and patients completely decompensated, ended up in the critical care unit on pressors and such until they could go to the OR. Although antibiotic therapy with coverage narrowed to an identified susceptible organism, such as the strep viridans, is appropriate treatment for uncomplicated infective endocarditis because of this patient's associated valve dysfunction and likely perivalvular abscess, surgical treatment is needed in addition to antibiotic therapy. Cardiac cath obviously is not indicated in this patient and could increase the risk of embolization of the vegetation if you're mucking around anywhere in the heart. Cardiac cath before planned cardiac surgery is indicated in patients with risk factors for coronary artery disease, which this patient did not have. Although the vegetative lesion in endocarditis is a product of both bacterial and platelet adhesion, no studies have shown a reduction in embolic events in patients treated with heparin, so that's why heparin's the wrong choice. So key point in this question, in patients with endocarditis complicated by heart failure, abscess, severe regurgitation, or hemodynamic derangements, valve replacement should be performed urgently without delay to determine the response to antibiotic therapy. All right, so hopefully you guys did okay with that question there. That's an important one and you're highly likely to get asked about that on uh, one of the USMLE exams uh, or the, the board exams if you hopefully go into medicine. Item 24, a 62-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department for a three-day history of fever, vomiting, confusion, and left-sided abdominal pain. Medical history includes hypertension and type 2 diabetes mellitus. Current medications are lisinopril and metformin. The patient's medical record confirms a previous hospitalization for penicillin-related anaphylaxis. On physical examination, temperature is 39.4 degrees centigrade or 102.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 86 over 52 millimeters of mercury. Uh-oh. Pulse rate is 128 per minute. Respiratory rate is 24 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 94% on ambient air. Left-sided costovertebral angle tenderness is present. Leukocyte count is 24,000 per microliter. And creatinine is 2.8 milligrams per deciliter. Let me say that again. Creatinine is 2.8 milligrams per deciliter. Your analysis shows 220 leukocytes per high-power field and many bacteria. Urine and blood cultures are obtained. Volume resuscitation is begun. Which of the following is the most appropriate empiric antibiotic treatment? A. Ampicillin and gentamicin. B. Ciprofloxacin. C, imipenem, or D, vancomycin. So, you know, as you're contemplating this question, just a little trick here, uh, they may 
put out choices that your medical center, your clinics, wherever you're located are not um, going for in this situ in this exact situation. Um, but that's you don't get that choice, like to write in something. So you have to pick the best choice out of the four options that are listed here. Um, so you want to think about things like the fact that she was hospitalized previously for penicillin-related anaphylaxis uh, and uh, other such things, and then thinking about common organisms that would cause the disorder she has. And, of course, the disorder she has appears to be pyelonephritis with sepsis. So with that in mind, again, I'll read the choices A, AMP, and GENT, B, ciprofloxacin, C, imipenem, or D, vancomycin. So the answer here is B. Uh, the most appropriate treatment for this patient is intravenous ciprofloxacin. Now, you know, having said that, um, we have trouble or had trouble for a while getting IV ciprofloxacin for our patients without infectious disease approval for good reasons I won't get into. Um, so again, that's just an example of how these questions don't always mesh with what you're doing in your own situation. But, you know, thinking about, it, okay, this patient has sepsis as a result of acute pyelonephritis. Pyelonephritis is associated with abrupt onset of fevers, chills, sweats, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, myalgia, and flank or abdominal pain. Hypotension and septic shock may occur in severe cases. Urinary frequency and dysuria may precede pyelonephritis, but, by the way, they don't always. Consider outpatient management for patients with pyelonephritis who are medically stable and able to take oral medications. Fluoroquinolones are used as first-line empiric oral therapy, therapy they're easy for me to say, oral therapy, except for in pregnancy. Because of the higher urine drug concentrations uh, that are achieved compared with um, termethoprim sulfamethoxazole, all this is why uh, the fluoroquinolones are probably a better choice. Um, ampicillin, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and first-generation cephalosporins are no longer used for empiric therapy because of unacceptably high rates of resistance. Patients with pyelonephritis who are acutely ill, hypotensive, nauseated, or vomiting are admitted to the hospital for intravenous fluids and parenteral antibiotics, as would obviously be the case in this woman's situation. She's pretty sick based on her vital signs and uh, clinical history. Empiric therapy has begun with a fluoroquinolone, an extended-spectrum cephalosporin or penicillin or an aminoglycoside, and treatment is continued for 7 to 14 days. And by the way, it doesn't all need to be intravenous, of course. Cephalosporins or aminoglycosides alone are insufficient for treating infections caused by enterococci. So remember, the big hole in cephalosporins, uh, and one of my favorite pimping questions on the wards is, what's the big hole in cephalosporins? And I try and get everyone to say enterococci, but they don't always say that. So I repeat the question several days later <laughs> and sound very monotonous. Uh, persistent fever and unilateral flank pain despite adequate treatment suggests perinephric or intravenal abscess and the need for kidney-computed tomography. And I said this in an earlier question, but keep in mind with pyelonephritis, patients may spike fevers uh, up to three or four days into treatment, but it's just that they spike less dramatically each day. It's sort of this classic sort of downward trending uh, fever curve. That's important to tell patients about that if you send them home before they're done having fevers. Doesn't mean they're failing treatment, just means um, that it's taking a while to get better. 
Ampicillin and imipenem should be avoided considering the patient's severe allergy to penicillin. Aminoglycoside should be avoided in patients with kidney disease. That was the kicker about this woman's creatinine being elevated in the twos. Vancomycin does not provide coverage for gram-negative organisms, thus that would have been a not a very good choice for this patient. So the key point here is empiric therapy for hospitalized patients with pyelonephritis includes fluoroquinolone and extended-spectrum cephalosporin or penicillin or an aminoglycoside, and treatment has continued for 7 to 10 days. So FYI, at our institution, uh, we use a th usually throw a third-generation cephalosporin uh, at these patients, keeping in mind <clears throat> that if it's a male, uh, they're going to have a higher rate of enterococcus, and women can also have enterococcus uh, there too. So if they're truly septic, uh, vancomycin is not a bad choice, um, or potentially ampicillin, whatever. But thinking about... Um, Enterococci is a good idea. The other thing they don't talk about here that I like to teach people in the hospital is you can also order a, a stat gram stain. Um, in the middle of the night, if you get a gram stain back that sees fat gram-negative rods and you don't see gram-positive cocci in uh, chains, that would be um, indicative of enterococcus, um, then you can pretty much put your nickel down on E. coli and vice versa. If you saw gram-positive cocci in chains, um, you might then put your money down on enterococci and cover for that. Um, and remember, cephalosporins aren't going to get the enterococci, not to be repetitive, but to be repetitive. All right, so that was, um, <clears throat> that was item number 24. We're going to go to item 25 in the infectious disease section. Oops, sorry, the mountain lion says I have to give you a mental break for a second. from Bologna, Italy again. I introduced him to you yesterday, and you can find his music on iTunes, um, and probably in a record store, if you can find a record store, CD store too, but his music is quite nice. Um, it's very calming also in these troubled times. Okay, item 25. A 73-year-old man is evaluated during a routine office visit. He has a 35-year history of type 2 diabetes mellitus that is treated with metformin. He has an indwelling urinary catheter that was placed nine months ago for bladder dysfunction related to diabetic autonomic neuropathy. A visiting home nurse has left the message that the patient's urine has turned cloudy. She has ordered a urinalysis and has sent along the report to the office. The patient currently feels well and has no symptoms. On physical examination, the patient's mental status and vital signs, including temperature, are normal. There is no suprapubic or costovertebral angle tenderness. An indwelling urinary catheter with a collection bag is present. The urine appears cloudy. Urinalysis shows 40 leukocytes 
per high power field and bacteria. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Ciprofloxacin. B. Repeat urinalysis. C. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole administration. D. Urine culture. Or E. No addition, additional testing or treatment. Again, A. Ciprofloxacin. B. Repeat urinalysis. C. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. D. Urine culture. Or E. No addition, additional testing or treatment. So, um, in terms of the answer to this one, uh, this would be E, which is uh, that no additional testing or treatment is indicated. This comes up all the time um, in patients who have indwelling catheters. The prevalence of asymptomatic bacteria is higher in women than in men, uh, and this is just in general. Asymptomatic bacteria occurs more commonly in pregnancy Patients with diabetes and older patients, particularly men who are 65 years of age or older. Asymptomatic bacteria is also often seen in patients with indwelling urinary catheters. However, treatment of asymptomatic bacteria in adult non-pregnant patients, including patients with diabetes and the elderly, generally is not indicated. However, screening for and treatment of bacteria in pregnancy have been shown to be effective in preventing pyelonephritis. <clears throat> so that's the one situation where for sure you're going to treat asymptomatic bacteria. Symptoms and signs compatible with catheter-associated urinary tract infection, so-called CAUTI, include fever, rigors, altered mental status, malaise or lethargy, flank pain, costovertebral angle tenderness, and hematuria. In asymptomatic patients with indwelling urethral or suprapubic catheter screening for bacteria is not recommended except in pregnant women. The finding of pyuria in a patient with a chronic indwelling urinary catheter and asymptomatic bacteria should not be interpreted as an indication of antimicrobial, sorry, as an indication for antimicrobial treatment. Urinary collection systems concentrate normal urinary components and are frequently colonized with bacteria making interpretation of urinalysis findings quite difficult. Thus, treatment with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or ciprofloxacin is not indicated in this patient. Repeat urinalysis or urine culture is unnecessary in a patient without urinary symptoms. So this is a conceptually very important question, and in reality a very important question in medicine. So key point, in patients with indwelling urinary catheters, screening for and treating asymptomatic bacteria is not recommended except in pregnant women. All right, so last question here, question uh, the fifth of our little bunch, so I don't overload you guys, if I haven't already, uh, is item 26. A 22-year-old woman is evaluated for a one-day history of dysuria and urinary urgency and frequency. She had an episode of cystitis two years ago. She has a sulfa allergy. On physical examination, temperature is normal. Blood pressure is 110 over 60 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 60 and respiratory rate is 14 per minute. There is mild suprapubic tenderness, but no flank tenderness. The remainder of the findings on examination are normal. Urine dipstick and analysis shows three plus leukocyte esterase, 
a pregnancy test is negative. Treatment with which of the following antibiotics is most appropriate in this patient? A. Amoxicillin B. Phosphomycin C. Ciprofloxacin or D. Nitrofurantoin So this is a good one. I picked this one because uh, there's so many potential debates we could get into about this one depending on what you do in your own local environment but again this is going through the choices and picking the most logical one the answer here actually is d uh, and that is nitrofurantoin this patient has acute uncomplicated cystitis and is therefore a candidate for a short course of antibiotics how many days you ask usually three um, and it's unusual to treat for less or more, um, but in case you get asked that uh, on, the, on the steps. Although a number of antimicrobial agents are appropriate, the preferred initial therapy is a three-day course. Of, oh, I'm going to get into the exception to the rule here. Though I just said that uh, we usually use three days, but uh, you're going to hear something different for a different antibiotic. Um, although a number of antimicrobial agents are appropriate, the preferred initial therapy is a three-day course of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole if local resistance rates of urinary tract pathogens do not exceed 20% or if the infecting organism is known to be susceptible. So that's the sort of caveat to using trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. If you have more than 20% resistance patterns, in your own local community or hospital, you're not going to choose that particular drug unless you know that the bacteria is susceptible to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. However, this patient has a reported sulfa allergy, which complicates this question. That's their little curveball here. Therefore, she should be treated with nitrofurantone for five days. You're like, what? You just said three days. Uh, well, nitrofurantone has excellent coverage for common organisms responsible for cystitis and has minimal propensity to select for drug-resistant organisms. Yay! Uh, however, a three-day regimen of nitrofurantone is not as effective as a three-day regimen of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or fluoroquinolone agents. Therefore, treatment of uncomplicated cystitis with nitrofurantone is recommended for five days. And this is, I think, is, to my knowledge, is the only antibiotic we do this with. Nitrofurantone should not be used if early pilonephritis is suspected. They don't get into the reason for that, interestingly enough, but my understanding of that is that nitrofurantone has very poor tissue penetration. It's good in, in the urine, but it's not good if the infection extends into tissue as it does in pilonephritis. Amoxicillin or ampicillin should not be used unless the infecting organism is known to be susceptible because of the relatively high frequency of E. coli species resistant to these agents among patients with community-acquired urinary tract infections. Fluoroquinolone agents such as ciprofloxacin are alternatives for patients who are allergic to or intolerant of first-line agents or who live in areas where resistance to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is higher than 20%. Fluoroquinolones are highly effective agents, and three-day regimens are equivalent in efficacy to longer treatment courses. They should be reserved for more serious infections than acute cystitis. And this is the, the point I was going to make um, about this question probably being debatable in your own community. You've probably seen Cipro used empirically. 
And indeed, I have seen it used in our community as well. So this is a hard question. I think that you, some of you probably picked C. Um, and if you're out there in practice, that wouldn't be the end of the world. Nitrofurantone uh, for five days is probably a better choice in this woman who does not have signs of pyelonephritis, however and she is allergic to sulfa drugs. So what about the phosphomycin? Well, phosphomycin is another alternative first-line agent for uncomplicated cystitis if it is available, but its efficacy is inferior compared with other short-course first-line agents. Mm -hmm. However, it is extremely expensive relative to most other agents and used to treat uncomplicated cystitis, and it should not be used if early pyelonephritis is suspected. And I'm not sure about the reasons for that one, but I'm going to assume it's probably simpler, uh, similar to nitrofurantone in terms of poor tissue penetration. Anyway, that's it for today. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening or morning if you're listening to this in the morning. And I'll be back soon. I don't know how soon. Maybe in 24 hours, maybe in 48 hours. Um, we'll see but uh, with another episode of Mountain Lion. In fact, I'll be uploading something very different a little later today or tomorrow that's part of the bedside presentations and rounding series that I've been doing, which is a totally separate thing from these podcasts uh, for distance learning. Thanks, and have a good evening.